Amen. All right, look at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 17. It says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, and after their journey, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And I'm not going to read through this whole chapter again, but we just read how the people, they got ready. They got so mad at Moses in this story. The Bible says they were Moses said they're about ready to stone me. Okay? Now, let's think about that for a minute because this, what motivated me to preach this message, and I, sometimes I preach things, the motivation for my message is frustration. You know, certain event, current events, things aggravate me, and it just gets me fired up, and I just, I gotta preach it to get it off my chest. Well, I've gotten, I, what has motivated this message, what's got me fired up, is reading through the book of Exodus. And I don't know about you, but when I read through the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy, and then even into Joshua and Judges, and I read the way the people keep turning on Moses and keep getting mad at God after all God did, I just I get frustrated. I'm like, how stupid could these people have been? You would think that the generation that walked through the Red Sea would be people of great faith. Yet they were not. And I want to I want to just show you some things. I've been in Exodus in my Bible reading, and I'm reading these things. And you know, and I, I just started thinking about some stuff here, and we see the way the children of Israel acted, and the Bible makes it very clear. We'll look at this passage later. These things in the in the Bible were written for our admonition. We're supposed to learn from these things, and I'm afraid, just like the children of Israel never learned from all the mistakes they made, we often fail to learn from their mistakes and even our own mistakes. And so let's, you know, this man Moses that they are wanting to stone in this story. Because they're in a tough spot. They don't have any water. That's a problem. You've got to have water. But at the same time, while they're in a tough spot, should they really have been ready to stone Moses? Because let's look at Moses' track record and ask that this is the guy that deserved to get stoned. Okay, So first off, Moses was the guy who came and pronounced the ten plagues that came on Egypt. Now, you would think right there, that would have got the children of Israel trusting this guy. Hey, he's the guy that came and pronounced the ten plagues. The ten plagues that only hurt the people of Egypt and didn't hurt us. God is obviously on this man's side. God is obviously doing something for us. It was Moses that told the people to put the blood on the doorposts of their house because a destroying angel was going to come through and kill all the firstborn. And it just so happened that... Everybody who didn't have blood on their door, their firstborns died. And those who did have blood on their door, their children didn't die. Or their firstborns didn't die. You would think right there, that would have told the people, Moses is a man that we can trust. God is on his side. It says, and um, it was, you know, Moses was the one that led them through the Red Sea. Let's look at that. Let's look at a few verses there. Exodus 14, verse 10 says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. 
Now, I might be missing something. I don't remember if they actually said that or if this is them being Captain Hindsight. I just learned that term from Aaron this week. You know, we got a lot of people that are Captain Hindsight. And let me tell you something. i got a problem with people. You know, we all have thoughts go through our heads every day. We all think things, you know, we've all thought something bad about people before. And I'm sick of people who after something is exposed and after something comes out, I knew it. No, you didn't. If you knew it, you'd have told somebody. So shut up. You know who you are? You're Captain Hindsight. Nobody cares about Captain Hindsight. Nobody cares about all the clues that you saw and you figured out and you put together you never told anybody about until after the fact and after it happened. Alright? You're Captain Hindsight. You're not a prophet. You're not a good judge of character. You're just lame. Alright? So get over it. We all know, we all know the, you know, the answer to the mystery the second time we watch the movie. Alright? It's only impressive if you get it the first time before all the clues. Alright? Just a little side note right there. But the, that's what these people are saying. You know, we knew we shouldn't do this. Okay, now you would think in this story that they, they still should have trusted Moses. After the ten plagues, it should have been clear to them, we can follow this man. But what do they do? The first sign of trouble. The first sign of trouble, what do they do? They start, you know, yelling at Moses, you brought us out here to die. And you would think though, after that, when Moses, you know, when all of a sudden God parts the Red Sea and Moses leads him across, you would think at that point they would have said, We can trust this guy. This is a man that we can follow. It was Moses that performed the healing of the bitter water after they had been murmuring. Look at chapter 15. Verse 22, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Okay, this is in chapter 15. Chapter 14 is when they crossed the Red Sea. And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and when he had cast it into the waters, the water were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and ordinance, and there he proved them. Okay, now listen, folks. Throwing a tree into the water and it making the water good, that is a miracle, my friends. That is not, you know, that's not some, you know, that's not chemistry right there. That is a miracle. And this is something they did after they're murmuring against Moses. The same crowd that followed him through the Red Sea are murmuring against him when the water's bitter. And then what does he do? He throws a tree in the water. All of a sudden, the water is good. You think now they're going to trust Moses? Well, no, because we see in chapter 16, in, in verse 1, and they took, so chapter 14, the Red Sea. They're crying and complaining. God parts the waters. They go across. Chapter 15, the water's bad. They're complaining again. Moses heals the water. Chapter 16, they're hungry. And they turn from uh, their journey from Elam and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full... For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. So here, and if you go on and you read the story, sure enough, I mean, there's manna from heaven that ends up feeding them after they murmured and they complained again. Chapter 17, we see it was Moses who smote the rock to make water come out when the assembly was ready to stone Moses. Look what it says in verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin. After their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now, they've already had this problem once before. And Moses took care of them, didn't he? Okay? I understand it was God that did these miracles, but God was using Moses. Moses was their leader. Moses was the guy they were supposed to be following. And God was using Moses. While they're all complaining, while they're all having no faith, it was Moses that was always having faith. It was Moses that was always leading them in the right direction. And it says in verse 3, And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this, that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me again. Alright? This is like the Cartwrights on Bonanza. I hate to use the illustration like this. How many times did the people on Bonanza try to hang the Cartwrights? My dad used to always laugh about that. And they always turned out to be innocent. They always turned out to be the good guys. They always turned out to be right. But every other episode, they're always trying to hang the Cartwrights. I shouldn't use illustrations like that, but I just, I felt, I felt led to bring that up. Verse 5 says, The Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee three of the elders of Israel and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. Take it in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb and thou shalt smite the rock and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he, and he called the uh, name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So I mean, right there, I mean, Listen, you don't get water from a rock. But Moses did. Moses did when Moses listened to the Lord and did what the Lord told him to do. And so chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, one thing after another. And then uh, in also in chapter 17, we see that it was Moses, we read the story, where when they're fighting against Amalek, while Moses' hands are in the air, they're prevailing. When his hands go down... They start to lose, and then when his hand, then you know Aaron and her came, they held his hands up. Then they ended up prevailing. Now you would think right there, these people said, "Man, there's something about this Moses guy. I think this is somebody that we can trust. I think this is somebody we can follow. I think the next time we find ourselves in the jam, you know what we should probably do? We should probably follow Moses. You know why? Because Moses proved himself." over and over and over again to be a man of God. It was Moses in chapter 18 that stood there all day long listening to the complaints of these people. They're all having conflict with each other and it was Moses that was dealing with their conflicts. It was Moses that was helping them with their problems. And you know the story? His father-in-law comes along and says, hey, appoint some judges to help you with these things. But it was Moses that was given his life to help these people. Putting up with their junk. All day long. It was Moses that gave them the law of God. It was Moses who literally got in between them and God many times when God was ready to kill all of them. Kind of like Jesus does with us. Okay, And Moses did this before Jesus went to the cross. 
Moses is telling the Lord, hey, kill me, blot me out of your book instead of them. This is the man that they kept turning on. This man who had proven himself over and over and over again. The children of Israel had every reason in the world to follow Moses without reservation because there was no doubt the hand of the Lord was on him. There was no, he had a proven track record of being faithful and just being right. He had that. Now, was Moses perfect? No, he was not perfect. He was not perfect, but he was God's man. He did what God wanted to do. I mean, time after time after time, we're seeing God use him. God's blessing him. God is saving the people, uh, you know, protecting the people through Moses. And yet they just kept turning on him. You see why I get frustrated when I read these chapters? It's like, what a terrible bunch of people. And that's why God called them, the, I think it's in Deuteronomy, children in whom is no faith. That's how they were. God wants a people of faith, and that's why God rejected Israel. Because there were people without faith. That's not how Abraham was. Abraham was a man of faith. And we could talk a lot about that. But we see though, even though Moses proved himself over and over and over and over and over again, every single time they would end up in an emotional situation, they would lose it. And you know what? People still do the same thing today. We don't, we don't learn. And look, we have so many examples of people not following leadership that God ordained throughout the Bible while in difficult situations. There's example after example. They even would do the same thing with Joshua many times. Joshua, who, I mean, really, I think you could say, made less mistakes than Moses did. I mean, it was Joshua who led him across the Jordan River. It was Joshua that helped, you know, that led them in just victory after victory after victory, with the exception of the one after Achan took of the accursed thing. But it was Joshua the clean house after that had him stone Achan and get rid of him and all his family and all the cursed thing so they were able to go and win the battle the next time. I mean, Joshua in many ways did better than Moses. And we, I mean, there's, there's almost nothing negative about Joshua in the Bible. I mean, the biggest thing probably negative you can find about Joshua. And Joshua was one of two people out of all the children of Israel that actually did have faith when they originally uh, saw the land of Canaan. It was him and Caleb. They were the only ones that were allowed in. And you would think, in the land of Israel, when they're looking, like, you know, we only have two guys in our entire nation that are over a certain age. We only have two guys that made it, that, are, that were originally in Egypt, that were over 20 at the time. Only two guys, Joshua and Caleb. You would think the people of Israel would have said, we can trust these guys. They prove themselves. Instead of literally the only negative thing I can think of said about Joshua, maybe I'm missing something, is after they lost that battle because they took the accursed thing. You know, he like fell on his face. He's crying out to God, and God told him to get up and gird up his loins like a man. You know, hey, you got sin in the camp, and then Joshua took care of it. I mean, that's probably about the only negative thing you can find about Joshua. These these are the type of people. These are the type of leaders that God gave Israel. Great men proven men, and yet they kept turning on them over and over and over again. And so, uh, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 10. Now listen, there is a big difference. There is a, And I mentioned this last week. There is a big difference between the authority, the pull, and the clout that guys like Moses had versus a pastor. Okay, I, Moses had a lot more authority. 
I'm not allowed to kill anybody. I'm not allowed to. There's a lot of things that Moses could have done that I'm not allowed to do. All right. I, 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 you know, pastors are different. I talked about that. But look at 1 Corinthians 10. I referred to this passage earlier, but let's go ahead and look at it. I guess I need to turn that. I didn't put it in my notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We, it is appropriate for us to take these stories from the Old Testament and to apply them to our lives. Okay. None of us in here are probably ever going to wander through a wilderness, okay? None of you in here are ever going to wander through a wilderness with me for 40 years. You might have to for a short time during the Great Tribulation or something like that. I don't know. But, you know, even then, even then you probably won't have to do, you probably won't have to do that. But, we are supposed to learn from these things. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. Wait a minute. How could the children of Israel have been our fathers when we're not Jews? These are Corinthians. Uh, put that in your pipe and smoke of dispensation. Let's think about that for a minute. So there's an all you're gonna have to do a lot of rightly dividing and a lot of ructardation to get through that get out of that one. But anyway, and we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drink of that spiritual rock and that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Uh oh. You know, they drank of the same drink from the same rock that us that Jesus, they got saved through Jesus. Uh, there's, another, there's another one. This is another tough passage for the Rucktards. But anyway, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Wait a minute. These things were written for us? I thought the Old Testament was written to the Jews. Uh oh, alright. You know, this isn't about dispensationalism, but I just felt led to point some of these things out. The Old Testament was written for us, according to the New Testament, according to a Pauline epistle written to Gentiles. But it says, Neither be idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the Lord sat down to eat and drink, and the people rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the winds and the world will come. The Pentateuch was written for us. Okay, that's what the Bible says. And it says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. These we are supposed to learn from these things. What was Israel's problem at the time? First of all, they had no faith. They kept turning on the man that God had appointed over them, upon the leader that God put in charge. They kept turning on him when they had no reason to. Moses had proven himself over and over and over again. When you stop and think about it, it really shouldn't have taken a lot of faith for people to follow Moses. I mean, I've never done anything like that. I've never stood there and parted a read, you know, parted a sea. I mean, I I couldn't even part a creek if I wanted to. All right? Yet Moses did. It shouldn't take any faith. Moses called the called for these plagues. Moses wasn't no captain hindsight. Moses said what plagues were going to come before they came. Moses, time after time after time, he called these things. These people had every reason to follow him. It shouldn't have taken hardly any faith at all. And you know, the truth is, you know, it shouldn't take a whole lot of faith for us to follow the leaders that God has put in our life if it's the appropriate kind of leadership. If it's the kind that God called for. What I want to preach about tonight is the importance of 
proven leadership. Okay, all that was kind of intro there. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the Word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So I want you to notice a few things. First off, remember them that have the rule over you. It mentions whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And then it mentions Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. Okay? Jesus doesn't change. The leadership that God has called for in a church, we're going to look at a lot of passages on this, are people who have proven themselves. See, one of the problems that's happened in the you know IFB world, and I'm sure this is in many other religions too, but I'm only familiar with the IFB world, is there's a lot of people that they think, well, he's got the title, therefore, you know, it's everything's owed to him. But the truth is, when we put people in a position that God told us we should not put them in, we create a huge problem. Because we are supposed to follow leadership, aren't we? We are supposed to follow the leadership of the pastor in the church, are we not? But what if a church puts the wrong guy in? What if the church puts somebody in leadership that God told them they should not put in leadership? They're in a bad position now, aren't they? And the truth is, when we, when we do things the right way, when we have the right kind of leader that God called for, I believe we protect ourselves. And God wants faithful people. God wants somebody that's proven. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. He's not going to change. God doesn't want us you know, putting people in charge. Somebody who's just bouncing around from one idea to another, one religion to another. He's a Catholic one day and a Methodist the next day and a Baptist the day after that. That's not the kind of people that we're supposed to put in leadership. He says in verse 9, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. You, know, we don't, you don't want somebody that's getting caught up in all just these weird side things that's just inconsistent. The kind of leadership that we see that God used in the Bible were people that were proven leaders. The people that God would call, tell the people, I want you to follow these people. These were people that had proven themselves. They're, they're, when, when you look at these guys, it was very clear these were people that you should be able to trust. And I'm afraid today in Baptist churches, we've got too many people standing behind pulpits, too many people getting titles that have no business getting those titles. And then churches are wondering why you know their families are falling apart, why the churches are falling apart. They got the wrong kind of leadership in there. They put somebody in there that God never called for. And that is a problem. And God has called us to follow proven leadership. And what does proven leadership look like? Well, first off, I believe it's somebody who has a record of faithfulness. Okay, turn to First Timothy chapter three. Someone who has a record of faithfulness. Okay, you know Tommy. He's you know, he just he got a job this week. He's he's having his first day tomorrow. Tommy was having a tough time getting a job. You know, partially because you know he's 16 years old and he has no work history. All right. People aren't going to give that guy a very good job usually because there's no history. So sometimes what you have to do, you kind of have to go into that entry level job. You know, you got to go and kind of get that crummy job that nobody wants. Why? Because you got to prove yourself. You know, and the truth is, you know, if you can't handle, if you can't survive McDonald's, you know, you're probably not going to be able to survive 
some, you know, some of these other jobs that pay more. You know, and so you do these things to test yourself. And I'm afraid today that there are too many people getting put behind pulpits that just have no business being there. They have no track record. They have no record of faithfulness. And God has called for this. And I mentioned this last week and I'm going to say it again. I don't give a rip about some guy that says up and says, God called me to this. When he doesn't meet the qualifications, God did not call him. Okay? They can say that all they want. But the truth is, if they don't meet the qualifications, God did not call them. And that's the end of story right there. But look what it says in 1 Timothy 3 8. It says, likewise must the deacons, okay, talking about the qualifications for deacons, be grave, not double tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience, and let these also First, before they get the office of a deacon, first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Y'all see that? A deacon needs to be tested first. You know what we have a lot of people today? They come into churches and they want the title without proving themselves first. Before you should ever get a title, before you should ever get the actual position of something, you know what you need to do? You need to do the work that that position requires first. You need to prove that you can do it first. All right, you, you want to be a deacon? You know, you want to be like, which I believe a deacon is like an assistant pastor in the church. All right, let me see you do the work. All right, let's see if you can lead a soul winning group. Hey, let's, you know, let's see if you can preach. Let's see if you even know the Word of God. You know, let's see if you can handle some things. Let's give you some responsibilities first and see if you can handle it. If you can't do it, if we can't count on you, if you can't show up for church half the time, if you're not faithful in the little things, what makes us think you're going to be faithful in the big things? If you're not faithful in the little things, you're not going to be faithful in the big things. The Bible tells us that over and over again. And you got a lot of people, they just want to come waltzing in and they want this position and they don't want to prove themselves first. Hey, you know what? Let's see, let's see what you can handle. Let's see if you can handle some criticism first. Let's see how you handle when you mess up being chewed out by the pastor. Can you handle that? Because you know, if you can't handle that, you know what? You probably shouldn't be a deacon. If you can't handle getting chewed out by the pastor, you know, who loves you and wants you to succeed, you know, you're definitely not going to be able to handle it when you've got people in the church working against you that just don't like you. Maybe somebody wants to try to overthrow your position. If you can't handle criticism, you have no business being a deacon. You have no business being a pastor. Let's see what you can handle. And we've had people over here before too that wanted to get trained. We had a guy one time wanted to get trained. I corrected him on one thing. One thing. And boom, done, gone. One little thing. And that was it. It was over. I was like, well, found out what I needed to know. But it's like a lot of these guys, they just want to come along. They want you to lay hands on them. Sorry, that's not how it works. you got to first be proved. That means you got to do the work first. And I'm sorry, and I'll say more about this here in a little bit, but you know, it's gonna, you need more than a year or two to prove you're faithful. Okay? You need, you need some history. And the, really, the longer the better. People are wanting to rush this stuff. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, "...and the things that thou hast learned of Me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to men who should be able to teach others also." Anybody notice the word I left out? Faithful men. 
Okay? Hey, just because you're a man, just because you're married, just because you have kids, doesn't mean you fulfill requirements of a bishop or a deacon. No, the Bible says faithful men. Faithful men. Alright, how long is faithful? Okay? How long do I have to prove myself? Well, I'll say more about, I'll say more about that in a little bit. But 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Alright? So how do we know when somebody's proven? Okay? And this is, this is a huge problem. I, I've got a huge problem with this. I see this, I see this all the time. Okay, and I gotta be careful what I say tonight, cause I'm not, I don't wanna get up here tonight and create new requirements and new rules and things like that. So I hope everybody gets the spirit of this too. But there's a lot of people out there, a lot of these bozos are in the online world, your keyboard warriors, you know, these pastor wannabes that never done anything in their life. And literally, it's like what they're all looking for is they're looking for a checklist of qualifications that they can mark up. Alright, husband and wife, okay, good, got the wife. You know, having children, all right, got the multiple children, two children. All right, you know, wife, we gotta hurry up and have these two kids so I can be qualified to be a bishop. You know, and you know, they, they want to be able to mark off a checklist. You know, you have to have read through your Bible this many times. You have to have been saved this many years. You have to have been married this long. And listen, I am 110% for a pastor having a list of standards that he has. I'm 110% for that. But listen, I can come up with the most strict list of standards that any pastor has. And you know what? It doesn't necessarily prove that somebody is qualified just because they can check all those things off. There's actually there's actually a little more to it than that. And you got a lot of these people that are looking for a checklist. Kind of like Catholics. I never killed anybody. I never stole. Therefore, I'm going to heaven, right? Show me the checklist. Show me the laws. And that's what they're looking for. They're always, they're all, you know, show me the checklist. Listen, nobody should get married and have kids so they can be qualified to be a pastor. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. You know why you ought to get married? You ought to get married because, hey, you found a woman that you love. You found a woman that you're compatible with. You know why you ought to have kids? Because that's just what married people do. You don't do these things so you can be qualified. You're supposed to be doing these things because they're the right thing to do. You don't go soul winning just so you can, you know, because I gotta, I gotta have this many people get saved if the pastor gives that requirement. You don't go and you read through your Bible ten times because some pastor has a requirement that if he's gonna ordain you, you read through your Bible ten times. You know, you read through your Bible ten times because that's just what you're supposed to do. Y'all see what I'm saying? We've got a lot of people out there that they're just so desperate for this position, they're trying to meet off, you know, they're just trying to check all these things off. They're doing all the right things for the wrong reasons. We, we should be doing these things because we just believe in them. We ought to do these things because it's the right thing to do. We ought to do these things because we love the Lord. And you know, I'm sick of these people just looking for the checklist, just trying to check all these things off. There's more to it than that. There's the spirit of these things. And we've, we've got a world full of religious people today that are just, they're coming up with their own checklist of things. Alright, I got baptized. I did this sacrament. I took the communion. I did all that stuff. I'm all good to go. They're missing the point. Alright? And truth is, none of those things will save you anyway. And the truth is, just being able to check these things off, once again, that doesn't necessarily prove anything. Okay? And if you're doing all that stuff 
Even though they're the right things, you should do them for the right reason. And what determines if somebody is doing things for the right reason, it's if they have a track record of faithfulness. Well, how many years is that? You know, and that's whatever. It, and why do people ask that? How many years is that? They they ask you that because they want to they want to know what box they can check off, so they can add another box. Well, I'll throw a number out there: seven years. Okay, all right. I've been being faithful since this time. I just got to make it until then. No, listen, faith. Your goal should be be faithful till you're dead. You know, it's not about trying to, to check something off. It's not about trying to achieve this. Faithfulness is something that we decide to do just for the rest of our life, no matter what. Because you know what? What if what if after seven years of faithfulness, I'm like, you know what? I think you bad got a bad personality. I don't think you're cut out for it. You know, you know, you you, you just stink. All right, you're not smart enough. You know, you, you'll you'll never you'll never make it. You can't do it. So now you're going to quit being faithful. Now you're going to quit having kids. Now you're going to quit reading through your Bible. Because man, he's not going to ordain me. That no, you ought to be doing these things no matter what. And it takes time to actually prove that. And so it's these. It's not about checking things off a checklist. You've got to prove themselves. And you and and you need to prove yourself to more than just one person too. Okay, more than one person as a pastor. All right. I can ordain people, but I would be foolish as a pastor to just go and ordain somebody that like the whole congregation is like, you should be ordaining this guy. Well, I'm the pastor. I'm the one that ordains. Yeah, but we're all the church here. And a lot of times it's real easy for one guy to act one way around me, but it's hard around the entire congregation. Truth is, if a guy's been faithful in this church and he's been in here for several years and been serving the Lord, a bunch of us have got to watch him. A bunch of them. A bunch of us. You know, he has a testimony with all of us. Many of us have seen him out in public. Hey, have you ever seen him going to the bars? Have you ever seen him doing this? You know, we got eyes all over the place, and it would be a, it would be foolish for a pastor not to take into consideration what the people in the church think on that. I'm not saying we got to put it to a vote and all these things. But you know what? If half the church thinks this guy has a bad testimony and isn't cut out for it, it's okay if I say, "Well, hey, why is that?" Well, you know, Pastor, we've been out, you know, we've been out souling with him. You know, he he says weird stuff out souling. He's you know pushing a false gospel. You know, he's not doing. He's not teaching about this. He's he's doing that. And you know what? Church members do all the time. A pastor goes and ordains somebody. He turns out to be a dirt bag, and then everybody in the church, yeah, I knew this about him. I knew this about him. You know, Captain Hindsight comes along. You know, and it's like, well, hey, why didn't you tell me these things before? You know, I need to know these things. These things are these things are important because you can you can fake it to the pastor, but you're going to have a hard time faking it to the entire congregation. And you know when I, when I, and and I you know and I don't know for sure on all this stuff. I personally think an individual church, an individual pastor, ought to be able to send out a guy. Okay, now where I came from when I was ordained, all the ordinations I've ever participated in, you know, in my in my old IP days, there was always multiple pastors. There were seven pastors that participated in my ordination. When I was ordained, I got grilled by all seven of those pastors privately, where they all hammered me with questions. And these were guys that all already knew me too. In fact, all of those men except for one had known me since I was a baby. You know, they they'd known my family since before I was born. And they all grilled me. These are guys that watched me grow up. After they grilled me, they put me up on a platform, on a chair, 
And they all asked me questions again in front of the whole congregation. They even asked my wife a question too. And she freaked her out. She's like, oh. you know, she still talks about that. And then they said, does anybody in the congregation have a question? I don't think anybody asked anything too. I'm like, oh, I, wasn't ready, I wasn't ready for that. You know, that. That was one of the things they did. Now, you know what they were doing? They were privately testing me. They were publicly testing me. Why? As, as a testimony, because then if I go and I get ordained, and then I'm just preaching damnable heresy two weeks later, then you know what? They can easily say, hey man, this man is a liar and an infiltrator. We asked him about these things. You all saw us ask him about these things. And you heard what he said. And here's what he's doing. This man is a fraud. This man is a phony. It makes it real easy for them to mark me and prove me as a fraud by doing those things. And so, you know, I believe, I believe these things, I don't believe these things are foolproof. Because once again, alright, so when I, because when I had my ordination, it was something, you know, everybody knew, hey, by the time he's going to get ordained this night. So a bunch of my family came. I mean, my grandparents were there. You know, some of my wife's family was all there. There was all these people we invited. There were all these people that came to see me get ordained. Now, what do you all think would have happened? And all these pastors that came all this way, what do you think would have, do you really think if one of those pastors was like, you know what, I got a problem with this dude. I see something in him. I can see him turning post-trib one of these days. You know, I don't, I don't think I, I can lay hands on him. I vote we don't ordain him. Well, do you really think they were going to go and stop my ordination right then after all these people came? You know, it's not completely foolproof. I mean, I guess they, could, they probably would have done that if I'd have said, well, you know, they asked me about the King James Bible. If I'd have been like, well, I kind of like the NIV. You know, I, I think they'd have shut it down right then. But like I said, for the most part, they knew, they knew me well enough before. But, you know, said it, but while it's not completely foolproof, is it not great accountability? to do that. And the truth is, we need accountability. People need to prove themselves. They need to have some kind of track record of faithfulness. And so, you know, some somebody who has that record of faithfulness, that's the leadership that God has called us to follow. He didn't call us to just follow any bozo that comes along that has a title. We're not supposed to give titles to just any bozo. We're supposed to give it to people who meet the qualifications that God gave. It needs to be someone who has proven himself capable of the job he's being appointed to do. Look what it says in Philemon 1, uh, verse 10. It says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, and thou therefore receive him that is mine own bowels. Okay? In this case with, with uh, Onesimus here, he was somebody who at one time was not profitable. He was somebody that was not good as a servant. But you know what? Paul's telling him, hey, he's proven himself to me. You can, you can trust this guy now. He's somebody, he's proved that he's capable of doing the right thing. He's proved that he can be of value. It says in 2 Timothy 4.9, it says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Look at this. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Okay? He's, Mark is profitable. Now, does anybody remember Mark before in the book of Acts? Mark was somebody who had departed from them at one time 
And then Barnabas later wanted to bring Mark back, but Paul said no because he had not been faithful. And because of that, there was so much contention between Paul and Barnabas, they ended up separating, didn't they? Over Mark. But you know what? At some point, years later, even though Mark had messed up before, Mark finally proved himself to be faithful. And Paul later says, hey, you know what? I want Mark. He's proven himself faithful. Okay? Now, how, you know, said, how many years? That's what people think. How many years? How many years? How many years does it take? Once again, I ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's not about a number of years. It's about the person. It is about how much, you know, if I'm the guy ordaining somebody, it is going to be about my feelings, my opinion of that person. He's going to have to convince me. He's going to have to convince this church that he has proven himself, that he is the real deal, that he actually is faithful. I'm not going to put, I can't necessarily put a number on that. I can have a bare minimum standard if I want. I think that's fine. But at the end of the day, just because somebody hits that five-year mark, seven-year mark, whatever it is, that's not necessarily prove it to me. It, it depend, There's a lot of factors in there. And it is. It's kind of a case-by-case thing because who I ordain, who I lay hands on, that's a reflection on me. That is a reflection on our church. And I'm going. And if I'm going to go put somebody in a position and say, this man is a pastor, okay, that congregation that starts going there, they're assuming this is the kind of leader that God has called us to follow. One who has met these qualifications and I'm doing people a disservice to give somebody that title who doesn't deserve it. And it needs to be somebody who has proven themselves capable of doing the work that they've been called to do. That means they've done something similar before. You've given them other things to do and they prove that they can do it. Some people need to do the work before they receive the title and especially before they receive that authority. And these examples don't have to have a perfect record, but you can make a comeback. Thank God for that. We can make comebacks. We don't have to be perfect, but if you mess up, it's going to delay it. and it's going to, It might delay it a long time. Especially if you were faithful for a long time and then you messed up. You know, now you've got to kind of do all that again and then some. So it is, it, you, you never give up. But, you know, I think, you know, a, a great example of somebody who had accomplished nothing before taking on the role of pastor was Tyler Doka. Now, Tyler Doka was very deceptive at first, acted like he was sent out of this church, but I heard it from the pastor's own mouth that supposedly sent him out that one, he did not send him out. Not only did he not send him out, not only did he not ordain him, but he never did anything in that church that he was in. He was in that church. He was not involved. He did not participate. He's just kind of showing up for the services. And all of a sudden, he's wanting to pastor a church. And you know what? The pastor's like, you know, you can go do what you want. You know, that's fine or whatever, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to ordain you. I'm not going to say this is out of our church. And, you know, and he said maybe if he, proves himself there, if he accomplishes something there, maybe we'll ordain him later. Well, within one week of him starting that church that he was not sent out of, you know, that pastor is like, yeah, I'm done with this guy. But Doka had done nothing. And all of a sudden, he just decides, I want to be a pastor. And he didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. And even and he never got sent out. And that's why the guy's turned out to be a total fraud. And I think... I think he just got rid of the name Baptist. I hope he did. I hope he did. Because there's no Baptist in the world that teach saved people go to the lake of fire. Zero. 
And I and I, I knew it was only a matter of time. I hope that's what he did. But Doka is a great example of that. A guy who accomplished nothing. And then all of a sudden he's calling himself a pastor. That's gar- that's garbage. And that, that should never happen. A pastor, uh, the leadership that God called for should be someone who has gone above and beyond and done some great things for God. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 33, right, talking about David here, it says, And Saul said unto David, Thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. All right, David wants to go fight Goliath. So that, hey, I want this big job. I want this big task. Saul's like, you can't do that. You're just a youth. You've never done anything. David's like, uh, actually, I have done some things. Look what he said. And I, uh, he said, David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered him out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. The servant that slew both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing that he hath defied the armies of the living God. David, before he fought Goliath, you know what he did? He killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. That's pretty good, isn't it? And you know what? He wasn't just running his mouth. He actually did it. He was somebody that actually did these things. And then he went and Saul said, alright, go at it. And then you know what David did? David went and killed Goliath. But you know what? David didn't become the king just then, yet did he? David ended up fighting for Saul. David ended up slaying tens of thousands of people. David proved over and over and over again that he was a good leader. And then finally, guess what? Years, years later, he became king. Now, was he a perfect king? No, he was not a perfect king, but he was a good king. He was one that did a lot of great things for God. Whenever there was good kings in the future, God always said he did good like David. And David, before he ever did any of the big things, or before he ever you know, got the title, before he ever had a title, before he was ever a captain, before he was ever had any kind of title, you know what he was? He was a shepherd and he actually did some great things. He killed a lion and a bear. Still didn't have a title yet other than shepherd. And he kills Goliath. Now all of a sudden he's a captain. Now all of a sudden he's a leader. Now he has a title. You know what he did? He worked his way up because that's the way things are supposed to be done. And David, had he accomplished things. You know, and everybody hates that manager where they work that just got promoted off the street. You know, they, that manager they hire off the street. We all want the guy that worked his way up, Right? We want that. We like that guy. We have respect for the one that started at the bottom, that did the work, proved himself. You know that guy that just came out of college. Everybody hates that guy. You know because he got a big degree or whatever. We all hate that guy. We don't respect him, and it takes a lot for those guys to earn respect. You know they don't just they they never just automatically get it because they got the job. They've got to prove that they know how to lead. And they actually, I mean, a lot of times get held to a higher standard than the guys that work their way up. Because those guys that work their way up are like, hey, this guy knows what I'm doing. He's done my job before. You know, he was a good worker when he was, at my, you know, doing the same thing I did. I trust this guy. And he, because why he's been proven. And so we do. We have, you know, it needs to be somebody who's done great things. And, you know, I think about, you know, some of the leaders that I've known, even some leaders I know personally today that have done some great things for God. They have accomplished amazing things for God, yet when things go a little south and things go a little sour, everybody freaks out. Everybody, everybody runs away. I was like, well, wait a minute. Why don't, we, why don't we stop and think about 
the years of faithfulness. You know, my dad, he pastored his church for 30 years. Right? You know, my dad, he went through a couple splits during those times. And there were times when things got difficult and things got emotional and people questioned what he was doing and they ended up running. But you know what? It was always turned out he, he was in, ended up being right. He said, was he perfectly right all the time? No. When I was his assistant pastor, there were many times when I had to follow his leadership when I didn't agree with him. And you know what? Most of those times when I had to follow his leadership when I didn't agree with him, he ended up being right. But you know what? Not 100% of the time. But did you know that 100% of the time when I followed his leadership, even if it wasn't completely right, I was right for following the leadership that God had put there. A proven leadership. A leadership that had some had a track record. A track record of faithfulness. That should mean something. Okay? That kind of thing ought to mean something. And, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't like talking about myself. Alright, but this, and this is just, and, you know, new IFBers that watch this, don't create a new box on your check mark that you have to do, alright? This was just me personally, alright? As soon as I hit 20, you know, I, I, I was technically the assistant pastor, an assistant pastor at Lighthouse when I was 19 years old. Okay? I was, only, I was getting paid like 100 bucks a month, man. I was, or not a month, a week. I was excited, man. I'm getting paid being assistant. Now, I had already been doing the work before. All of a sudden, I just started getting paid for it. And then I got a title, too. I was pretty excited about it. You know, and then, after I did that for six years, I became full-time staff there. And I did, or for five, after five years, and, after, and then I did that for six years before I became a pastor. Now, I will tell you, from the age of 20... After I became assistant pastor, I was I wanted to go pastor a church. I wanted to go take over a church, but you know, the Lord just kind of reminded me. Okay, my dad, who my dad, thirty years faithfully pastored the same church. My uncle, who's a pastor today for thirty-one years now, he's been pastoring his church. My dad and my uncle, they both got in the ministry at a young age. My dad pastored his first church at eighteen years old. Okay. But from about 18 to 25, my dad jumped around in a lot of different ministries. My uncle was the same thing. He was always like pastoring this place and evangelism here. He was just all over the place. By the time both of them, when they hit 30, they got into the place where they stuck and they stayed. And I knew that many pastors that I grew up listening to, I would always hear their story, and they did. They were like all over the place. Assistant pastor, youth pastor here, this place, that place. I took over this church, it failed. I started this church, it failed. You know, and then they got somewhere at 30, and then they stuck there, and they went on and they succeeded. And I got to thinking about one day, I was like, you know what? Jesus started his ministry at 30. John the Baptist started his ministry at 30. I'm like, you know, I don't want to have my kids moving all over the country. I don't want to be jumping from ministry to ministry. And it was just kind of something I set for myself. It's like, I don't want to move to another ministry until I hit 30. Because I want to go somewhere and I want to stay there. That's, that was what I wanted to do. And when I turned 30, that's what we did. That's when we made plans to start this church. And that's what we did. All right. Been here seven years so far. According to that number I was throwing out earlier, that counts as faithfulness, right? Check mark. You know, faithful. Now, that, all right. I'm not saying you have to be 30, okay? And I, there are people that started pastoring younger and they succeeded and they did just fine. It is a case by case thing. But why, you know, why was that my thinking? Because 
I knew you you got to do something first. You got to prove yourself first. It's not going to happen that young. Some people they haven't proven themselves at forty. Listen, if you were just sitting in jail five or six years ago, you're not ready to pastor, even if you're forty. Even if you have a wife and two kids, okay, you were just sitting in jail five years ago. You're just smoking weed five years ago. You're you're not ready. You got to prove that you're faithful first. And when you do, when you have that right leader who's actually proven themselves faithful, who has done all these things we've talked about, you know what? That's when you can say, you know what? Things look bad right now, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. It looked bad when they're out, when the children of Israel are out in a desert, and there's nothing to drink. There's nothing but rocks. That looks bad, doesn't it? Isn't that a good time? Hey, can we can we now freak out on Moses? You remember? Let's look at his track record. Let's, look, let's, let's take that in consideration. You know, and we think about you know some of our past friends. You know, you think about Pastor Anderson. You think about some of the amazing things that guy's accomplished in the last several years. I mean, it's pretty amazing what he's done. Has the, and there's been times where things looked didn't look good. You know, and what, is, what do people always do there? Freak out. All right. So some stuff not, not looking good right now. You know, time to freak out and run. Really. How about we look at the track record? You know, how about we think about some of the things that have been accomplished and say, you know what? Let's give them the benefit of the doubt on this one. You know, let's just see what happens. It's not our place, whatever. I think I think that's a good policy to have when somebody has proven themselves. Okay? You know, and he's somebody he started pastoring before he was thirty. You know, and I'm not saying I, I would never ordain anybody under thirty that so that was just a rule I had for myself. But we do. God, the leadership that God called for is a proven leadership that has a track record and we can't get anxious. I want to see churches started as bad as anybody else, but we cannot lower the standard because of the need. We shoot ourselves in the foot when we do that. The cause of Christ is hurt when preachers fall and when people get into sin. We cannot let this happen. It gets it gives the work of the Lord a black eye and you know what? If you're somebody that's out there and you want to be in the ministry, you want to be used to God someday, you know what you need to do? You need to have some patience. And you need to be willing to serve for a while, to be in the shadows, stop looking for that instant title and that instant you know, YouTube fame, these clowns that get up and they preach their first sermon and it's like some clickbait title, just you know, some shock jock type message, just hoping they'll get a video to go viral so they can get a little following online. You know what? You're a punk. You have no business ever being in the ministry. You know, don't try come don't you know, I don't want any of these people coming here to try to get trained. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna send out a bunch of shock jock punks that are just looking for a following. I've got no use for that. You know what? I want the guy that's faithful. I want the guy that's steady. I want somebody that's consistent. I want somebody that has proven themselves to be the real deal because I care too much about my name. I care too much about the name of this church to just send out any punk that comes along because he meets a few physical requirements. It's going to, it's going to take more than that. We want proven leadership. That is what God has called for. And if you have that, thank God for it and, and trust it. Said, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. If I'm leading you to do something that's against the scriptures, you don't have to do that. Okay? But if, if, if it's something that's questionable, if it's something that God has appointed me as pastor aside, you know what? Even when things look bad, consider, consider the record. Consider the past. 
Consider those things, and I believe if you do, I believe you'll be okay. And so, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your goodness to us. We thank You for uh, Your Word. We thank You for the examples You've given us. Help us, Lord, to uh, trust You and help us to um, follow Your commands and to uh, follow the proven leadership. Lord, help us not to lower the standards just because the need is great. Help us to do what You commanded to do us to do. And help us to be the kind of people that you want to use. And I pray you'll help us to do great things for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's